you want to turn to page 620. Seriously, you'd like to follow as I read a few verses from Psalm 103. I'd like to ask Jerry Burris to pray for the success of God's Word. Psalm 103 at verse uh, 8 and I'll read through 13. Mm -hmm. Jehovah is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your promises that you do not repay us according to our iniquities. That you have sent your son and he has paid for them. That before you knit our bones in our mother's womb, you knew us and cared for our way in our paths and made the path before us to be drawn to your Son that we would hear your word and believe. We thank you that you have brought us here tonight by your hand in mercy and safety. We ask that you would, you who made the ear, make us to hear and open our hearts. We know that your word does not fail but prospers in that for which you sent it. Send your word to us tonight and hide your servant behind your spirit that we may hear you speaking as he opens your word to us. We ask this for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. This is David's third grand metaphor. We've looked at two previously. This metaphor that he has employed, speaking of the loving kindness of God toward his people. That loving kindness he has told us is as high above the earth as the heavens. Grand and wonderful figure. And he has also told us with regard to the removal of our transgressions that he has removed them so far as the east is from the west. And now we look at this third metaphor, like as a father, as a father, pitieth his children. So Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. What is God's pity? 
God's pity for his people is like that, we're told, is like that of a father. We all think of earthly fathers, and this is the figure that David has employed here with regard to the pity of God toward his own. He speaks of an earthly father's pity, compassion, love for his own sons, for his own daughters. And he makes this comparison, this parallel, if you will, as he employs this metaphor. It's like as a father pities his children. This is how God, our Father, pities them that fear him. Those that fear him. That's tantamount to saying his children, is it not? That's tantamount to saying the children of God. That's tantamount to saying those that love God through Jesus Christ, are those that fear him. In Jeremiah 32, 40, we read this promise of God. I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not depart from me. And that promise is linked, I believe, to the promise that was just spoken in Jeremiah 31, that new covenant I will give them a new heart. I will put my law upon it. And here he says, I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not depart from me. That's how God pities his children. That's how God pities those that fear him. That fear is a filial fear. That fear is not the fear of eternal punishment. That fear is displeasing our Father in heaven through the love that we have for him because of the new hearts he has given to us with that love, that faith, that repentance in the, in the heart that we were given. We fear to displease our God. We desire, we seek his smile. We fear the displeasure of a frown. These that he speaks of is them that fear him are none other than his children through regenerating grace, his children through the blood of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Those that fear him are his children. Pity, one of the most pronounced demonstrations that came, come to my, comes to my mind whenever I think of God's compassion. We think of it often as a human expression, a human term, something that God, who is, some teach, without feelings, without form, and so on. But I would read this portion of Hosea to you again. I would read it in your hearing, simply to remind you of the compassion of God. He's not some far off distant God that doesn't care for his people, that has wound everything up and now is just letting it unwind as it will. He cares for us so much that he saved us, so much that he gave his only darling son in order to save us. So much that God the Holy Spirit has condescended to indwell us, to direct us, and to guide us, and to strengthen us. 
and to help us in every attempt that we make to express that love back to God. But in Hosea, we read these words of God. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? I know that he's speaking of the Jews. I know that he's speaking of Ephraim and he's speaking of Israel and so on. But I believe he's speaking to the children of Israel, his children, the ones for whom Jesus Christ has died, the real Israel. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I cast thee off, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My compassions are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God. I can do what I want, and I will do what I want. And I want to exercise compassion on my people. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One, in the midst of thee, and I will not come in wrath. They shall walk after Jehovah, who will roar like a lion, for he will roar, and the children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling as a bird out of Egypt, and as a dove out of the land of Assyria, and I will make them to dwell in their houses, saith Jehovah. How difficult is it to make his own people dwell in their own houses that he's prepared for them? No more difficult than it is for him to make them willing in the day of his power to come unto him. God pities his children. He has compassion for his people. He will not let them go. Some of the dictionaries of Hebrew words and of Greek words Tell us that pity speaks of tender-heartedness. God is tender-hearted toward us like as a father. He compassionates us. We don't see that word very often unless we read some older books. But God compassionates us because he loves us. It's that tenderness. It's that, it's that loving kindness that we love to speak of. God's loving kindness toward us. We read in James, you have seen the end of the Lord, how that the Lord is full of pity and merciful. He's full of compassion. He's full of loving kindness and tenderness. We are pitiable. We need pity. We are most pitiable. Pitiable is synonymous to wretched, is it not? Think about that hymn. Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, that saved what? A wretch like me. Wretch is synonymous with pitiable. We are pitiable. We are wretches. John Newton was right. Jesus came to save wretches. Those that needed a physician, those that were suffering in their sin because of their sins. Pitiable people. We read about Jesus Christ in Psalm 72, where we read in verse 13, He, that is the King, will have pity on the poor, that's us, the weak and needy, and the souls of the needy He will save. 
expressing again his loving kindness. In these concrete ways, he saves us, he loves us, he pities us, he gives us what we need, he forgives us. Having given to us repentance for our sins and causing us to confess our sins, he forgives them. For he said, according to Isaiah, he said, surely they are my people. Children that will not deal falsely. So he was their savior. In all his afflictions, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Christ has loved us. And this is something we don't understand. We're not able to understand, but he has loved us with an everlasting love. I don't mean from the day we were converted until the rest of our eternal lives. I mean from before we were ever born. Before the foundation of the world, he loved us. He loved us because he loved us. And I don't anticipate that we will ever know why why we were chosen, why God the Father placed us in his Son, Jesus Christ, from before the foundation of the world. But we see that union with Christ has its source in the election of God the Father before the foundation of the world. Why were some chosen and others passed by? We don't know, but we see that the source was in the election of God from before the foundation of the world. And it has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God, we read in Romans. It is union with Christ Jesus, union with the Son. Now in the virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection, blessed by the Father, that certifies to him the reality of his election, this individual in Christ before the foundation of the world. Christ has ratified God's choice in fulfilling his Father's will and laying down his life for those whom the Father has given him. He is blessed, this individual, by the Father with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in Christ, just as he was chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, from eternal ages, placed in Christ. And that union with Christ has resulted in our eternal salvation through the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're looking at this Psalm of David, this 103rd Psalm. We've been looking at it. And we see that this is likely that which could be referred to in the realm of adoption. I believe that adoption is based upon being in Christ. And being in Christ is tantamount to being adopted, chosen to be placed in Christ by God the Father in Christ. What a powerful what a powerful two words, in Christ, being adopted, being given the authority, the right to be called, to become 
the sons of God we read in John, the first chapter. I watched once again several weeks ago and realized that I probably hadn't seen it for 50 years. The movie Ben-Hur. But there's an account in there and it's tantamount to the plot of the story, if you will. That Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur was, was sent for a, an untrue crime alleged against him. He was sent to the galleys virtually for life. The general that was over the uh, fleet of warships was a general, Quintius, Quintus Arius, in this story. Well, as it, as it played out, as it played out, they were losing the battle, at least the ship that the general was on. For some reason unknown to Ben-Hur, Quintus Arius had had one of his soldiers unloose the shackles from Ben-Hur. Proved to be very providential for Quintus Arius because when the ship went down, Ben-Hur was able to get out. Arius had been thrown over off and he, and he was drowning and Ben-Hur dove in and saved him and dragged the both of them up on a floating piece of the remnants of the ship. Because of that, Quintus Arius wanted to adopt Ben-Hur to make him his own son. And here you see a picture of the legal aspect of adoption. He wanted to make him his own son. And so he went through the necessary paperwork to do so. But the symbol of that was in his ring with his crest upon it that he could stamp anything he wanted with that crest in the Roman methodology. And that made it law. And he gave that ring. He put it on Ben-Hur's, Judah Ben-Hur's finger. A picture of adoption. But happily, they both had very strong feelings for one another as well. But I believe that we see here, not pretending that they were trying to say that Arius had become a believer. In fact, Ben-Hur wasn't a believer at the time. But that's a picture of adoption. And like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. Jehovah pities those whom he has adopted from before the foundation of the world, placing them in Christ. How does it feel to be an adopted child of God? How does it feel to not be left behind? And I'm not talking about that dispensational slop I'm talking about not being left behind at the great day because you've been adopted. My father was an orphan. <clears throat> I believe he was about three or four years old when he was placed with his, some of his siblings in an orphanage in St. Louis, Missouri. I remember him telling me how people would come in. You've probably seen this sort of thing in movies, people coming in looking for a child to adopt and they're looking for these cute little infants 
and we all love cute little infants. But he's, they're looking for these cute little infants. My dad's telling me how, and, and it makes me want to cry for him. But he's telling me how that he was running around trying to look and, and, and put himself forward as something that they would love to adopt into their family. He was released from an orphanage at the age of 16. Nobody ever cared to adopt him. Nobody ever chose him. They always chose the little toddlers and the infants. But God, praise be to him, has adopted us. And we have the right to call him our father in heaven. And we have the rights of his children. As I mentioned, we read that in John's account, John's narrative in the first chapter. He came unto his own, speaking of Christ, and they that were his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name. To those that received him, to them gave he the right of adoption, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God because they were chosen of God and adopted into his family. Have we received him like these folk John speaks of? Have we received him? If we have, the only reason that we have been enabled to do so is because God has chosen us. He has redeemed us because he has adopted us and given us to his son to redeem. Have we believed on his name? It's because God has given us the faith Christ has merited for us the faith to believe on his name. Have we been born again? That is anew. You weren't born of your own will. I actually read a track years ago, and I hope I never see such a track again, actually telling people how they can receive Jesus Christ. How they can become Christians. All they have to do is to ask Jesus to come into their heart. And after they do that, did you do that? The track asks, have you done that now? You've been born again. By that act, in other words, they intended. Because of something they did. They birthed themselves. Terrible rubbish. We've been looking at this psalm beginning last year. We've been going through the entirety of it. But we can ask ourselves questions that we can only answer affirmatively because of the adoption, because of the merits of Jesus Christ. Has he forgiven our iniquities? Yes. You're a child of God. Has he redeemed us from destruction? Has he crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies? Has, is he satisfying all our desires, making our desires to be toward him? Is he renewing our youth? Has he brought us to the new birth through his own regenerative grace and power? 
Is he making known his ways? Is he made known his ways to Moses? Is he making himself known to us more day by day? That's what a father does. That's how a father pities his children. As he poured his mercy upon us because he poured his anger not on us, but poured his anger for our sins upon his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he granted that we would be beneficiaries of the atonement, the satisfaction of the blood of Christ. His loving kindness is higher than the heavens. Our sins have been put away as far as the east is from the west. Why? <clears throat> like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. This tender love, this affection, this pity, this compassion, to have a favorable, tender regard to, and for that reason to spare, to exempt from punishment, to be loath, to part with, that's what we read in Hosea, to be loath to part with, loving kindness, God is loath to part with us, whom he has chosen, loath to part with us, whom he has placed in Christ. Impossible to part with after Christ has paid the satisfaction due to redeem us. As a father pitieth his children. As often found in the book of Proverbs, God employs language that implies so often this is how things ought to be. This is the ideal, not necessarily how they truly are among men. One well-known proverb speaks of raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not part from it. Many fathers, many mothers know that that is not absolutely true in every case. And this, like as a father pitieth his children, is not always a positive thing. In other words, there are fathers fleshly fathers, earthly fathers that don't pity their children. And God is definitely not saying that he pities his children as those corrupt fathers fail to pity theirs. There are fathers according to the flesh that do not behave righteously toward children, toward their own children. As providence would have it, I was reading a particular book a couple of weeks ago and this account was didn't have anything to do with adoption or so on but nonetheless it gave me the an illustration of what I'm talking about <clears throat> we read in this man's account when he says on May on March 3rd 1983 David Rothenberg was a beautiful and carefree six-year-old spending a few days in California with his father this was involving a custody dispute. We hear way too much about that. 
He went to sleep in the motel room that night, eagerly anticipating a trip to Disneyland the next day. But while he slept, his father doused the room with three gallons of kerosene, lit a match, and ran. <coughs> the room literally exploded into flames. Reports said that David's screams could be heard as his father sped away in a car. There was no pity in the heart of that father for his child. So we can't use this like as a father pitieth his children in an absolute sense. It's, it's the like as a father should pity his children. That's how God pities us. That's how God pities his children. Like as a father should ideally pity his own children. In searching for David Roth, Rothenberg, I found that he died just last August at the age of 42, horribly scarred. Cause of death was not reported. Those that fear Jehovah, fear Jehovah, a figure, as I've said, denoting the children of God from the Father's adopting grace. Those that fear Jehovah, those that God has adopted, he puts his fear in our hearts that they will not depart from him. In Ephesians, it's rather well known that that first chapter of Ephesians speaks powerfully of God's adopting grace, of God's saving grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, underline in Christ, even as he chose us in him, in him, underline, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love in Christ having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in Christ in him in the beloved in Jesus Christ, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It's all about being in Christ. It's all about being in the beloved. Then we are among the beloved, are we not? When we are in Christ. It's all about God's having chosen to adopt us, to make us the Sons and daughters of the living God, the Father in heaven, to make us sons and daughters of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've been dipping back into Bunyan's Holy War. The full title of Bunyan's Holy War is actually the Holy War made by Shaddai upon Diabolus for the regaining of the metropolis of the world, or the losing and taking again of the town of Mansoul. The editor offers this note when he says, Mansoul is figured under the simile of a town, which having surrendered to an insidious and mortal enemy, that's Diabolus, of course, 
is besieged by its lawful sovereign with all the pomp and circumstances of war. The arch enemy is driven out, the town retaken, new modeled and garrisoned by Emmanuel. Because it belonged, if you read the beginning of the Holy War, you read that the town of Mansoul was set up by God. And when he cast out, Bunyan suggests that when God cast out Satan, Diabolus, and his wicked angels, that they determined to look around for something that they could attack to get even. And they discovered the town of Mansoul, God's pride and joy, if we might say it that way. And they determined that they would take it. And they used all kinds of deception in order to take it. We saw something this morning in Sunday school about serpents. And we know that, that Satan employed a serpent to beguile Eve. And he overthrew the town of Mansoul when he beguiled Eve and Adam. When Adam sinned by taking the fruit, Eve being beguiled, he overthrew the town of Mansoul. He took that town. That speaks of him taking the soul of a man to himself. But God sends his son, Prince Emmanuel, to reclaim his own. Not every man in the entire universe, but his own. His adopted, those that he placed in Christ, his son, Prince Emmanuel, from before the foundation of the world, Prince Emmanuel comes to re reclaim those whom God had given him. It's a beautiful allegory, if possible, even more beautiful than Pilgrim's Progress. But in the scriptures, we find God putting this same account, as it were, upon the mouth of his prophet, Jeremiah. I believe it's analogous. I believe that it's parallel to what Bunyan is expressing in his allegory. Listen to Jeremiah 32, 36 and following. And now, therefore, thus saith Jehovah, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof ye say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon, by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger, and in my wrath, and in, my, and in great indignation, and I will bring them again unto this place. And I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way. It sounds exactly like what Prince Emmanuel did for the town of Mansoul. That they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from following them to do them good. And I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not depart from me. God has chosen a people They've rebelled against him, shaking their fist in his face, in Adam, rebelling against him, and were destined, as far as they could have any awareness, to the pit of hell, for their rebelling against their rightful sovereign. But he had adopted many 
of the sons of men that were yet to be born. And he sent his son into the world. He sent his son into the world to redeem them. Giving us that first inkling of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Talking about the seed of the woman and the seed of man. The seed of the evil one, we could say. But he would, even though the seed of the man would bruise his heel, he would bruise the head. Some like to translate that he would crush his head, and surely he did crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan. Uh, when he was at Golgotha and cried out, it is finished. Satan was done, it was all over. <coughs> like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. Like a, as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitied those that fear him. John cries out, I don't think it's exaggerated, to say he cries out in his first epistle. And at the beginning of the third chapter, Behold, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Hmm. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, our minds are going just now to eternity, and we thank thee, Father, that thou hast promised us eternity to praise and thank thee for what thou hast done. And we firmly believe that eternity will not exhaust the basis for our thanksgiving. Help us to continue that thanksgiving and praise in this life by the lives we live. We ask through Jesus Christ, Amen. <coughs> if you'd stand for the benediction from John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Amen.